Opening revivals in Galatians 3. What's happening in this letter that Paul is writing is that um, he is trying to take a bunch of people who have begun to believe a lie and he's directing them back to the truth. And so how he's doing that is last week, Paul took his readers and he reminded them how they received Christ. He reminded them about their own personal salvation. And he said, and he, and he, and he walked them through several things that God had done in their midst. And he says, did any of that happen because you were really good observers of the law? No, it all happened by faith. That was verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Verses 6 through 14, then he said that faith was the way that the father of your nation, of our nation, the faith was the way their father uh, Abraham was justified. It wasn't by works. It wasn't by the law or self-effort. It was by faith. And this week he continues that same type of, um, of discourse with them. And he, and he brings up another perspective to help the reader understand the nature of the covenant God has set in place with Abraham. We're in chapter 3, verses 15. We're going to start there. Today we're taking a smaller chunk, verses 15 through 18, all right? I'm reading from the New American Standards, beginning in verse 18. Brother, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it was ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and it does not say in two seeds, as referring to many, but many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance was based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So, now, for us to fully understand this, this passage, you need to flip back to the very first book. Go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 12, all right? Going to go to Genesis 12. And when you get to Genesis 12, did you know that there is a, a new Bible translation that is out? And it's unlike any of the rest of them. I, I saw it in Barnes & Noble a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was very interesting. I'm not going to spend my money on it, but I thought it was very interesting. I found that there is an online parallel to it. It is the Lego Bible. Yeah, to hear somebody say, cool. Who is that? Is that you, Rob Quanstrom? <laughs> the Lego Bible. That's right. So here is, uh, here's our text in the Lego Bible right here. Um, talk to me. And God always has that look on his face. Now, you could, probably, you, could, you could probably, like, do some preaching out of that alone right there, couldn't you? Now, let's be in John 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now then, in this blessing there are three parts. Let's look at those real quick. The three parts. The first one is the promise of land. Right there in chapter 12, verse 1. He's calling Abraham from this, the Ur of Chaldees to a land that he would give him. And he says in that place right there that he's going to give. And then later on he's going to even expand that and say, this is how much 
This land is going to be, this is the boundaries, the borders of this land will be. I'm going to give you all this from here to here and from there to there. And all this will be for your descendants. And then the second promise he gives is the promise of descendants. Chapter 2, I mean, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. God promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him. Abraham, and it's interesting too, is how he did this. It's because we know the story probably that Abraham at this point was an old man who had not yet had a son. Matter of fact, chapter 12 even starts and it says, um, Lord, there is, no, in chapter 15 later on, he says this, he says, Lord, you keep promising me descendants. You keep promising me children, and yet there's no one. But I have this one guy from Damascus, Eliezer, I think is his name. He goes, there's this one guy that has been loyal and faithful to me. So is, is he the seed? Is he who we're talking about? And he goes, no, 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 no. Not that one. One that's coming from you is what he says. And so he promises descendants to a man who is so old that he shouldn't be having children and to a woman who's even more so. And then on top of that, he gives this promise now, but he continues to to extend the fulfillment of it until they're even older. Until they're even older. And in that, he continues to accentuate even the nature of the promise. Because the promise and the covenant, really where we're going, jumping ahead just a little bit, the promise and the covenant says, God will do these things. And so what he does is, he makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah, and then he waits until it's almost impossible. It should be impossible. And God does it. God will. And so he makes a promise and he goes, I'll fulfill it my way. When it's impossible for you to have done it. And then the third promise is the promise of blessing. He says, those who, you, who, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And the ultimate blessing of this is in the salvation of Christ. Because that's how he says that the, the blessing extends to all families on earth. Now, the very last of, of verse 3 there. And that, that, and that, still, that still remains. I, I firmly believe that, um, that, that much of American politics was shaped on the idea of blessing Israel was important. And that's why we have a foreign policy that has historically been pro-Israeli, especially the last 50 or 60 years. Now, that is the covenant itself. But there's a ceremony that is recorded three chapters later in Genesis 15. Go there, flip over in your Bible to Genesis 15. And let's read that together, all right? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, for I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham, and Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, and, and Abram said Since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he, and, and he God, meaning God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
put your thumb there, put your finger there, highlight that in red, orange, blue, whatever color you want to, but that verse right there is the verse that amplifies everything that comes after it about Abraham and justification. Everything after it comes out of that verse right there. Let's read it again even. Um, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's huge. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and laid them half, each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which had passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. And he goes from there to talk about the boundaries of it. So this ceremony that they have here, it was a customary that covenants were made. And you notice a few things about it. Well, first of all, you tell me, you tell me what you notice about that ceremony. What observations you have about that ceremony? Talk to me. Excuse me? God made it with himself. All right, very good. What else? What are other observations you make about it? Excuse me? By passing through pieces of flesh. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. All right. What else? Think about the animals. Yes, Cindy? It was very specific. Yeah, absolutely. It was very specific. Gary? Abraham didn't participate. No. Matter of fact, he was put to sleep. It says he was in a deep sleep, and so he is unable to participate. There's a, some theology for you. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about it was that it was costly. There are several animals involved there. And for every animal that was involved there, depending upon the parties involved there, it was very costly. For every animal that was sacrificed like that, that meant that that animal would not give any new young'uns to be, to be sheared, to be milked, to be eaten. That, that animal was no longer available to, you know, it was, it was out of commission. It cost the participants to do that. And the other part of it, too, is that it was bloody. God is bloody. It's, it's his currency is blood. You go back, and you can go all the way back to Genesis, and it costs blood 
to cover the shame of Adam and Eve when they were found unclothed in the garden. Because it says that he used skins of an animal. An animal was killed to provide to cover the shame. It, it, it was costly because also, um, it was bloody, uh, the, the currency of blood. We also see um, in, this, in, this, in this covenant itself where there is a lot of blood there. And then we also see that, that um, when the firstborn in Egypt, when he, you know, God tells him, your children are going to serve as slaves in oppression in another nation, but they'll come out. Well, they come out, those who come out, they come out at the expense of blood as the firstborn is protected from death by blood. That's Passover, which is coming up April 14th. April 14th is Passover. And that's what it commemorates. An ancient, ancient covenant that God made with his people at that time. And then finally, God's own son sheds his blood to pay for men's sin. And therein is the ultimate fulfillment that we've talked about, the blessing of this covenant is in the death of Christ to pay for the payment of sin. You know, in my own opinion, you know, it seems like it'd be a lot cleaner just to have, there's the, there's the oh, I'm going to come back to that image. It seems like it'd be a lot easier to have like Robert Whitley or Joe Caracappa just drop a contract and we sit down with simple ink and sign it and all agree on it, right? But that's not the way God does it. Not at all. Um, I'm out of order here, so I've got to use this. this t- t- um, I like this image, and I don't like it. I like the image because the image portrays the fulfillment of the covenant in Christ, there on the cross. And it portrays God's um, provision, and there is Isaac there, you know, that's going to happen someday. What is one thing that is wrong with that image? Okay, Sarah wasn't there. Give me another one. I'm looking for a, a bigger theological one. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. All right, fine. Let me just tell you what I'm looking for. <clears throat> Abraham is a part of the contract. He's in the midst. If you read the text, only God passes through the parts. Now, maybe I'm reading more into it. But like in the text, only God passes through the part. God makes a covenant, as Joe said, with himself. And it benefits Abraham and all his seed. I do like also that the blood is here because I think that's significant. I think it's important. But Abraham did not walk through the parts. Abraham was on the outside looking in as God made a covenant with himself that made Abraham and his seed the benefactors. So, in Genesis 12, God is determined to call out a unique and special people for himself that would bring blessing to all the nations, to all the world. Um, This is the Abrahamic covenant, as it's called, and it's an unconditional covenant. There is no conditions attached to it. There's no if clauses. There's no outs. There's no performance clauses. Nothing like that at all. Its fulfillment is completely dependent upon God. It's also a literal covenant in the sense that the promises must be understood literally. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bless the world. Literal parts to the covenant. And then it's also an everlasting covenant. The promises that God made are eternal. And then in Genesis 15 with this ceremony, it highlights that unconditional nature. 
the only time, as we've kind of talked about, that the only time that the parties of a covenant would pass through the pieces is when both of them had to fulfill something. But in this case, only one did, and God was that one who had to fulfill it. He was the one who went through the parts, and it was, and it was symbolic of, the, of the, the flame and the, and the smoking pot there. He was the one who, um, went, who fulfilled it. And so the message is in this, if I break this agreement, may I be cut up and cut off just as these animals are. That was the message. Walking in the midst of them. It was very physical. I mean, it was probably, it was, it, it, every sense experienced it. And it says, if I break it, may I be like them. May I be like them. Now, looking at our text in Galatians, going back to Galatians 3, through 15, 3, 15 through 18. Now that we have all that behind us, Paul says, Brethren, I speak to you in, in, in terms of human relations. He's saying, look, we understand contracts. We understand promises. We understand agreements. And when a man makes an agreement, you keep that agreement. How much more so with God? That's what he's saying in the very first verse. How much more so with God? Man makes an agreement and we keep it. That's just, that's just the way we do things. That's what God did with Abraham, he says. So why would God act any differently? He wouldn't. He wouldn't at all. God made a promise with Abraham that is ageless and is extended all the way to Jesus. And he was the fulfillment of that and that he would bless all the nations. So the law, and then he goes on further and he goes, but the law does not invalidate the promise. Now remember, covenants are not made to be broken by man and surely not by God. And therefore, if if a covenant is made and it can't be broken by either party, you mean like it's, it's sealed, it's like what we do, um, and I've, I've married several of you in here, and I'm going to marry another one of you pretty soon and all. And, and so what we do, and when we do all of our premarital stuff, is we talk about a covenant. The very first time we talk about a covenant, what is it? What does it mean? What is it? What does it mean? And throughout our premarital times together, we say, well, this is what it means. How does that topic relate back to your covenant? Does it break your covenant? Does it give you an out? And then if you've ever heard me do a wedding, we talk about covenant are irrevocable. That's a big word. You can't undo them. There's no performance clauses involved. And so if that is the true nature of a covenant, what Paul is saying here is that the law does not undo that. The law does not come in and make the and, and does not come in and all of a sudden make the covenant a thing of the past. Verse eighteen, our verse. Let's even start at seventeen. What am I saying? Is this what I'm saying? Is this the law which came four hundred and thirty years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify even the promise? So, in other words, if you know. When Charlton Heston showed up, it didn't change things. When that, when that law was put on the tablets, it doesn't mean that the promise was altered in any different way. Now, so then the thing you have to ask, and what we're going to deal with in the next part of the passage is, well, then what was the purpose of the law? That is a great, great discussion. 
Even this morning in our worship time, I had one of those, and I can't wait to tell you about it next time. <clears throat> but Charlton Heston didn't change the promise. You know, Cecil Builder Mills didn't do that. The promise was unaffected by the law. Although what man did was man took the law and says, this is in addition to it. This is in addition to it. And that wasn't true at all. John Stott says that, the, that um, what is the difference between them, speaking of the law and the promise? In the promise of Abraham, God says, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God said, you shall, you shall, you shall. <coughs> the promise only had to be believed. The law had to be obeyed. What did we say a moment ago? What was that verse that I pointed out a moment ago that was so important out of Genesis 12? That he believed. There's no obey in that passage. Anywhere in the passage. It's only that he believed. The law of Moses was never meant to usurp the promise. It was never meant that God would change his mind. Matter of fact, even unpack that a little bit. Think through this with me. If, if the law was going to be an addition to the promise, what would that mean about the character of God? Talk to me. <clears throat> what would that mean about the character of God if he makes a promise and then he throws in the law? His love is conditional. What other observations do you have? His word is not enough. Word is not enough. Very good. What else? He didn't have it all figured out ahead of time. He added something in. It was an, after, it was an afterthought. Yes. What else? It's not a covenant anymore, said the lawyer. He should know. What else? We would have something to do with it. Yes. What else? God changes. Yes. Yes. What else? You, you see, you're observing that, that the relationship to the law to the covenant is immensely important. Because it speaks to the very character of God. And if the character of God all of a sudden is under suspicion, well now all of a sudden so is the promise. So is the law for that matter. So is everything else that God has said. and So is everything else that God has done. It doesn't do that. The law is not an addition. God's character did not change. The law was for us. Matter of fact, we even just go ahead and say that in the next few verses, it says the law was there to teach us about faith and about belief and about need. It was never there as an addition. Matter of fact, I even like the way that the Living Bible says, verse 18, Living Bible says like this, if obeying these laws could save us, then it's obvious that there would be a different way of gaining God's favor than Abraham's way. For he just simply believed. If the law could save us, then there is obvious there was a different way of gaining God's favor than Abraham's way. For he just believed. A couple of observations. A covenant is about a relationship. In this case, a relationship that is unconditional. God does everything in it. Abraham only had to believe. The law 
as we've already stated, is about obeying. You know, I don't personally know any of the local police officers, although I have had interactions with them. I don't personally know them. <clears throat> I don't personally know Donald Nashorn, the local judge. I don't personally know the lieutenant government or our governor or any of our representatives or senators, even though I've sent them emails. <laughs> um, I don't have a relationship with any of them, but I still have to obey the laws they pass. There's no relationship there. And therefore, there's very little grace, believe me. <clears throat> grace only happens in the context of relationships between people. And, and while we might extend grace to folks that we don't have a relationship with, we do so because we have a relationship with Christ. And he extended grace to us. And he expects us to take what he gave us and continue to pass it along to whether we know them or not. So there's still a relationship involved. And it might not be the relationship with me and the guy that just cut me off in traffic, but it is my relationship with him that compels me to extend grace to that guy. A covenant is based on relationship. Law is not. Paul is drawing the attention of the Galatians, and, and to me and you, from a life of slavery, of keeping laws, to a life of freedom found in God's grace. He's even going to say that in chapter 5, verse 1. And I keep saying this, and I have to find a better way to say it, a, a, a new way to express it. But living in God's grace means that we're free from the burden of trying to please God or anyone else for that matter. That deep abiding need doesn't have to be fed. That's freedom. And Paul is saying that God's covenant of grace did not stop and it was not changed by the Ten Commandments. It extends all the way to you and me. That, that covenant of grace extends to us. And so what he's doing in this chapter, he started and he goes, you started by faith. Abraham started by faith. Covenants that were made, that were made in faith, last. They're not changed. And so if all of that happened by faith, then faith is still the vehicle that you should be involved with now. It is still the way you should be doing your walk with God, by faith. And so, whereas we, we have this way of like, <clears throat> you know, we'll be reading something, and then this is what it says, and then we take it and we go, well, this is what it means. This is how I like it. This is um, how I think it should be said. Point in case. This Thursday night was the second opportunity I had to attend the interfaith discussion. And one of the ministers that were up there, and the, and the, and the topic this time was, was life rituals. Um, birth, marriage, death, burial, and coming of age things. So it dealt with bar mitzvah and so on and so forth. Or even confirmation in some Christian faiths. And so, um, I don't know how it came up now, um, but I, I know that like Dave Shaw was there with me and, and Robert was there with me. And, and Robert and I especially talked about this. That the issue came up where one of the ministers, and I'm, I won't, one of the ministers just said, um, well, in regard to that question regarding um, marriage between homosexuals, he said, my faith, with a capital letter, in other words, so if, if he said Islam, my 
Islam with a capital I or Judaism with a capital J or Christianity with a capital C says that it's not allowed. But I would do it. Matter of fact, I'm working on one right now that I'm going to oversee. That's what he said. When we talk about how we keep and how we hear the word and how we obey the word and what it means to us, we don't, we, we, we often write in stuff between the lines. There are entire denominations that have written stuff in between the lines now. They'll do this. We don't need to do that anymore. That doesn't apply anymore. We believe this is true now. That's, that's how it's all phrased. And the same thing happens to us when we feel that we still have to do something to remain saved, to please God, to have his favor, to gain entry into heaven. That's the same thing. We'll throw stones at the guy who says, I know what the church says, but this is what I do. That's, we do the same thing as him when we say, I know it says by faith, but I still have to do something, don't I? We do the same thing. You see, I, I'm just learning more and more about myself that I will throw stones all the time, but I just have to start at home more often and throw them there first. And Paul, and Paul's saying to them, no, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that I know it's by faith, but. It just says it's by faith. He says, you started by faith. Now keep walking by faith. Keep living by faith. You're free. You should live like that. You should live like that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, I confess that I don't get it and that I'm constantly trying to earn favor of others, yourself and others. Lord, continue to woo us and wean us away from that. Continue to draw us back to the very pure milk of faith alone. Thank you for your long suffering. Thank you for your, your hard work at teaching us through your word and saying it in so many different ways to try and help us to understand it and transition to learning it and living by it. May we depend upon your spirit to do that. And may we cease to strive and just enjoy you and live in the freedom that you give us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks a lot, folks. If you uh, want to chat about anything, I'll be up here. And uh, this, this Thursday night is the last of the interfaith discussions. It's going to be the best one, how you live out your faith in a daily way. So Thursday night, 730, Yardley United Methodist Church, or meet me here at church at 715. Ciao.